You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have Jay Wesley Richards. He's a research assistant professor at uh, the Catholic University of America. We're going to be talking about uh, his book, Eat Fast Feast. Uh, He's been an author of many other books, uh, Money, Greed, and God, uh, Privileged Planet, and uh, The Hobbit Party, The Vision of Freedom that J.R.R. Tolkien got and the West forgot. So, Jay, thank you for coming. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it seems like you have a very wide range of topics you write about. What what motivates you to write about what you've written about in the past and now? Well, honestly, I'm in, I'm uh, by trade a philosopher, at least by training. I teach in a business school. I'm really interested in the kind of intersection of philosophy uh, and different public issues. So I've written on philosophy and science, theology and science, uh, but really on the kind of intersection of ethics and economics. Uh, and, you know, fitness and health has never been the thing I've written on. It's been my sort of avocational interest. I've been interested in fitness since I was in college. I was a fitness trainer and been interested in, in diet and uh, wellness for a long time. And honestly, discovered fasting uh, sort of serendipitously just really um, in my own life and realized there's an amazing amount of information out there now. There's a lot of research about the physiological and the mental benefits of fasting But as a Catholic, I knew that at least in the Christian tradition, most of Christian history has involved fairly rigorous fasting. But the only really the only Christians that still consistently fast are in the Eastern Orthodox and Eastern Rite tradition. So folks like the Greek Orthodox, they still keep a really rigorous fasting schedule. And so I thought this is interesting that you have this kind of historical practice, certainly among Christians of rigorous fasting, both on a kind of weekly time scales and then according to the liturgical calendar, that's mostly died out. I mean, as Catholics, Catholics mostly just kind of practice residual fasting now. And yet, completely independently, there's now more and more uh, scientific research about the actual benefits of fasting. So what I really wanted to do is to combine those things, kind of make a case for why I think it's beneficial spiritually to fast and why it's beneficial physically. And actually, that, that makes sense. If we're body-soul unities, you would expect that a uh, practice like this might have both sp- spiritual and physical effects. Well, since you're a Catholic and it sounds like you studied you know, your own religion and others, how many religions uh, talk about fasting or utilize it, at least you know, old school? Yeah. Is it present I'm- in many? Yeah, in fact, virtually all of them. In fact, the only religion that I've been able to find that didn't have any kind of fasting is Zoroastrianism, which is a kind of ancient uh, Persian religion. And there's a still, you know, I joke, I say, how many Zoroastrians have you met lately? I mean, there's a few hundred thousand, I think, of them still uh, in modern day Iran. But all the major religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Judaism, 
uh, Christianity and Islam all have major fasting as a part of, uh, as their tradition. And the Muslims in particular are supposed to fast uh, every week. And then they're supposed to fast for a full month during the holy month of Ramadan. And these are both food and liquid fast from sunrise to sunset. So if you're a Muslim and it's Ramadan lands in the summer and you're in the Northern hemisphere, you know, you can be going 16, 18 hours a day for a full month fasting. And last time I checked, Muslims still seem to, to get by just fine doing this. It doesn't have terrible physical uh, you know, problems with it. And so that's, I, I honestly got curious, like, what is it that we're doing, um, say in the 20th century, that has caused fasting to be so difficult. And if you look historically, at least in Christian circles, this was a this was a serious thing that Christian serious Christians did all around the world, really until the 20th century. And so I started thinking, okay, what is it that caused us to lose that? And that sent me down a rabbit hole about the modern American diet that I think is actually the main culprit. Well, it seems like I guess to me the accessibility of food um, is just everywhere, and so you're able to eat all the time if you wish and I guess, I don't know, if you get into that pattern, you get used to it, you just, uh, you tend to eat all the time. And I remember myself, I, you know, I guess I would worry if I hadn't eaten in a few hours, you know, four or five hours. And I've heard that from many people. Mm -hmm. It seems like everyone's, uh, I don't know, intent on worrying about other people's eating. So maybe those are the factors. <laughs> they are. I mean, I think it's really a couple things. In some ways, it's sort of the, the blessing and the curse of abundance, because for most of human history, I mean, if you just think about normal patterns of eating, certainly prior to the agricultural period, so the hunter-gatherer stage of human existence, in which people might have a lot, of, a lot of food to eat, they might kill an animal and be able to eat a lot and would essentially feast on it, but then they might go days or even weeks without a whole lot to eat. And so um, that was the kind of natural pattern. And then even until recently, people didn't have Pop-Tarts and uh, you know, grape nuts available 24 seven. And as you said, now, if anything, you know, the kind of official scientific advice is to keep your insulin down and keep your blood sugar down and keep muscle on your body. You wanna eat lots of small meals every few hours. And so both because there's so much food available for us all the time, and also because we actually think it's good for us, we've gotten ourselves into this pattern. Uh, and so a lot of this has actually just started since the 1960s. I mean, in the 1960s, the average American just ate three meals a day with no, no snacks in between. Most of us now effectively graze. I mean, I quite intentionally, for most of my adult life, had about six or seven small meals a day. Some of those were protein shakes. I thought it was good for me. I thought that was the thing to do if I wanted to keep kind of lean muscle mass on and prevent my body from storing fat and things like that. And so that's, re that's really what I thought that I was supposed to do. And it turns out a lot of us thought that. It's just that the, the data now, if you actually look at the evidence, um, it turns out none of that's true. We don't actually need to eat quite frequently. Uh, there are certain macros that we eat. Oh, the other thing I didn't, didn't mention is that we have vastly increased the amount of simple carbohydrates and sugars that are a part of our diet, at least compared to the, kind of the historical precedent on that. So we eat frequently and we eat a lot of simple carbs and sugars, which tends to spike our insulin and eventually create so-called insulin resistance, which is, is not only bad for us long-term, it leads to bad things like obesity and type two diabetes, it also makes it really, really hard to fast. Because if your body's used to getting sugar every couple of hours or every three hours, it's going to scream at you and want you to, to, to feed it again like a beast when you don't do that. And so this is what I concluded is that, in fact, 
um, are kind of what's so-called standard American diet, heavy on simple carbs and sugars and frequent eating actually makes it much harder to fast. So if you want to make fasting part of your lifestyle, you're going to have to kind of kind of reverse the way in which you're normally used to eating. Uh, in terms of a fasting protocol, have you looked at both skipping entire days or multiple days or you know, going the uh, 16 hours without eating every day and doing like the intermittent fasting version where it's just a, you know, a short eating window, time-restricted feeding. Absolutely. And in fact, I, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are probably benefits to different time scales of fast. So if you think about the way our lives are oriented, you know, we have uh, patterns throughout the day, right? We, we are awake part of the time and are asleep part of the time. We eat part of the time. We don't eat part of the time. Uh, but there are also weekly patterns and monthly patterns. And in, in the Christian tradition, there are even seasonal patterns. So you have Advent followed by Christmas. So you've got a fasting season followed by a long feasting season. And then Lent, which is a long fasting season, followed by Easter. You've got these patterns at different time scales. And as you mentioned, there are now these different kinds of fasts. So so-called intermittent fasting or just time-restricted eating, where you just basically limit the number of hours you eat during the day, but you eat more or less every day. Um, that by itself is already something different from what most of us do, but you can also extend fast. So, you know, let's say a full 24 hour fast or a 36 hour fast where you don't do anything but drink non-caloric liquid, um, you know, for a day or two or three days. And then you've got way out on the sort of extremes, you've got full week long or even month long fasts. Um, I actually think there are benefits to having some of all of these. And so in the book, what I do is I actually lay out a six week plan designed both to help uh, people sample these different kinds of fasts. So, you know, maybe just time-restricted eating for, um, for the first week or the second week, you'll just say limit your eating to an eight-hour window, and then the next week you limit it to, to four hours, and then the next week you limit it to just one hour during the day. So in other words, you eat all your calories or all those that you can eat uh, during an hour of a day. And so it's only after several weeks of doing this that then I encourage people try to go for a full day or even as long as three days, that is 72 hours without eating. But if you do that correctly, and I also advise, at least in this transition to the, uh, the fasting lifestyle, that you actually eat a very low-carb diet, so a so-called ketogenic diet, in which you get most of your calories from fat and some from protein and very little of your calories from carbohydrates. You do that in order to uh, sort of turn online this other metabolic system that we all have but almost never use called ketosis. And so our bodies are really like, they're like hybrid cars that can run on both gasoline and, and electricity. But in our case, our bodies can run on sugar, that is we can run on carbohydrates, or we can run on fats. But as long as we've got sugar going into the system, we don't actually, your body won't use fat. So it'll tend to store extra fat as body fat rather than using it as fuel. But if you restrict the carbs that are going in, uh, essentially you use up all the carbohydrates in your liver and in your muscles, and then your body switches on this other system called ketosis where you, your body converts fat either from your body or from your diet into something called ketones, and then your cells can actually use ketones as an alternative source of fuel. I actually think that physiologically, this is what's happening in all the studies in which we see benefits from fasting. Uh, what's happening is that your body is using ketones and a, causes a bunch of different physiological processes to kick on. And so I advise in, through this kind of six-week period that you essentially start with just a little bit of time-restricted eating, and then you work your way up over six weeks to, you know, say a three-day fast. And if you do it while eating 
ketogenically, your body will get much better at adapting to using fat because that's her long-term goal, I argue, is to be metabolically flexible. In other words, you want your body to be really good at being able to use sugar when sugar, that is carbohydrates are available, but also to be able to kick into using fats when only fats are available, either when you're fasting or you're eating ketogenically. So your body is, I think, designed to be able to switch between these two modes, these, these two metabolic modes. But what most of us do for most of our life is we just stick with the sugar carbohydrate mode. And I think that's a problem. And so I really do think it's kind of a long answer, but that there are actual benefits to these different time scales. So it makes sense that you would have a kind of a daily fasting schedule, which is effectively only eat, eating only during kind of limited number of hours during the day that gives your body a rest. It tends to keep your insulin levels really low, but then that you'd also periodically have longer fasts so that maybe you go a day or two without eating at all. But what do you hear anecdotally from people as they're doing the time-restricted eating and, you know, when they get to a certain point, when they first started, what do you hear? If they get to the one hour a day part, what do you hear? And then the fasting part, Yeah. what do you observe? What I observe in a lot of this, as you said, we've got, there's an increasing amount of data. In fact, a lot of references from uh, recent scientific journals up to about five days. And so we're finding positive uh, effects, both sort of in terms of health effects and mental effects in terms of, uh, reducing body fat up to about five day fast. We don't have a lot of data beyond five days just because that's really, honestly, frankly, it's hard to um, run a study where you're having people fast for three weeks, you know, but there's a lot of data on uh, time restricted eating at least. So for instance, um, one study that restricts eating to eight hours a day and another to, to four hours a day. And the kind of to generalize effectively, uh, the more you do this within limits, um, the better your body is at processing its calories, uh, the, the more likely it is that you'll reduce inflammation, the more likely it is that you'll get uh, actually really good triglyceride levels in your blood, and uh, the more likely it is that you're going to keep your insulin levels down, which allows your body to, to use fat rather than storing it for fuel um, and reduce obesity and then associated diseases like type 2 diabetes. I, I draw a lot on Canadian doctor, Jason Fung, who's done a lot of really important frontline research on this. In fact, he writes the foreword to the book uh, and he is finding success reversing not just obesity, but type two diabetes entirely with diet through a combination of essentially kind of low, low carb eating and fasting. And Dr. Fung actually will do fasts of up to 14 days, of course, under uh, physician's guidance. In, in order to do this. And so I think that's at the moment, that is where a lot of the amazing effects of the physiological effects of fasting are happening. It's in treatment of type two diabetes and obesity. But I, I think that's just the beginning. That's where we have a lot of the data, but I do think there are also almost certainly effects in, in energy metabolism. There's some tantalizing evidence that might even help uh, treat certain kinds of cancer. And it certainly does something with mental acuity. In fact, that was what got me involved in this initially. I had a medical procedure and couldn't eat for three days. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to kill me. Uh, and right before I had the procedure, I'd gone a couple of days without eating and I went to work out. And I not only felt strangely strong, but I had this incredible mental clarity uh, that I had not really experienced before. And that's when I actually went online and discovered all the, the data on fasting. I think what your brain actually really likes to run on ketones 
And so at the moment, we've got a kind of mix of scientific evidence of the physiological benefits of moderate fasting and some tantalizing hypotheses and anecdotes about other uh, benefits that, that are you know, going to probably take a few more years before we can nail it down scientifically. Well, there's a lot of data, but do you speak directly to a lot of people that have gone through this or are going through it? And do they just tell you various stories that are interesting to you that stick out? Absolutely. In fact, I've got a friend that's doing it right now. And for the next six weeks, he's going to go through my plan. And uh, what people sort of overwhelmingly say is, yeah, at the beginning, it's sort of difficult for a few days until your body gets used to adapting to fat. But as soon as their body starts using fat for fuel, fasting gets a lot easier. And so uh, hunger pains, for instance, are not the same as the kind of physiological need to um, you know, to breathe, for instance, right? We can all maybe hold our breaths for a minute, but every second after that, it gets harder and harder to do. And it's, you know, you, you eventually will just simply, the physiological need to breathe will overcome you. That's not how hunger is though. Hunger doesn't just keep going in waves. In fact, there's a, a kind of cascade uh, of um, chemicals that essentially trigger hunger desire. But if you don't eat, it actually uh, goes away. And so the, your feelings of hunger will wax and wane. And so people that fast will notice that right at the beginning, if you're used to eating really frequently, you will feel kind of an intense hunger and you'll be tempted to think that it's just going to keep getting worse and worse. But if you muscle through, those hunger pangs go away. And in fact, people that do prolonged fasting uh, very often will say it's really after you get to the third day, it actually is not all that hard. It's two days of it, it kind of waxes and wanes and it gets really tough, but then the, the feelings of hunger go away. And I've discovered the same thing, having done this for a few years, is it's actually really easy to fast. I mean, today I'm doing a 24 hour fast and I'll, I'll eat something tonight after sunset. Uh, but you know, four years ago, if you'd asked me, I would be panicked that it's the middle of the afternoon and I haven't had anything to eat. I would feel that pain. I don't feel the pain at all. It doesn't bother me a bit. And so that's, that's I think, the kind of key thing is to realize it's fasting like any other thing is actually a skill. And if you put in a little practice and implement some of the kind of basic procedures to, to work it into your lifestyle, it's actually not that hard. Now, yes, it's still a sacrifice. I've had fellow Catholics say, wait, fasting is supposed to be a sacrifice. Well, of course it is. If you're you know, would kind of like to eat and you're foregoing eating, it's in a sense a sacrifice, but a sacrifice is not supposed to be torture. I mean, if somebody said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to give some of my money every month to the poor rather than spending it all. Um, that's a sacrifice. You're going to maybe not get to have as much stuff as you wanted before, but if every time they wrote a check to Goodwill or to the, you know, to the Red Cross, they got violently sick and nauseated and got migraine headaches, right? You'd assume, okay, well, it's supposed to be a sacrifice. It's not supposed to be torture. You must be doing something wrong. In the same way, fasting is right. not supposed to be a torture. It's, yeah, it's a sacrifice. It's something that you have to willfully do, uh, but it also has amazing benefits. And so if, if, if it's torture, that's probably a sign that you're just doing something wrong. Hmm. Okay. Um, what has it been for you like, you know, as you, as you've done it, over the, I don't know how long you've been doing this protocol for various protocols, but has it been months or years yet? How long is it yeah, it years? is. Yeah, it's been a few years actually now. I mean, and really quite strictly, it's been, um, I'd say about two full years now of, of doing it. And so I, I wasn't, I'm not an especially heavy person. I work out five or six times a week, a kind of combination of high intensity interval training and weightlifting. So it's not like I was carrying around a whole lot of extra weight, but I do know that once I really started doing this, my my body mass index and the body fat on my body went down and stayed down. So I'm 
basically the same weight that I was when I was a, a freshman in college. And so I'm definitely a little thinner. Uh, my brain works a lot better. Honestly, if I, if the only physical benefit to fasting was just the mental clarity, I think that alone would lead me to do it because, you know, as you know, I, I, I write books and I have to use my brain and being able to have mental clarity by itself is terrific. I also think it's, it's really, really helpful spiritually. It, it helps for me to, when I'm fasting, it helps me remember to pray, which is something I otherwise don't remember to do. And I, I think because we are, um, I think we're these kind of unique hybrids of the physical and the spiritual that makes sense that a practice like this, which is at one level, just kind of a deeply biological impulse to eat should also have these, these spiritual implications. And so I found it both, uh, both physically uh, enriching, but also spiritually enriching. And again, it's not sort of status. It's not surprising. What really was most surprising about this is that there would be so many physical benefits to fasting. I just did for a long time thought, well, it's something that spiritual superheroes can do, but it's going to be mostly torture and it's not going to make you feel better. It's not going to be good for you physically. It's just kind of something you do, but to discover that, no, in fact, it has these amazing, these blessings that it actually gives you physically. That's been the surprise for me. What about um, your work during the day? Do you feel like you have uh, too much time in your hands? Like what, what was eating doing to you during the workday? Was it, you know, how was it affecting your workday? And what's your workday like now? It's actually much more productive. I mean, that's, that's the irony. Needless to say, if you're eating six small meals a day, you're having to pause and prepare and eat six small meals a day. And it's sort of commonsensical. But if you do a 24-hour fast and you just eat once during the day, there is a huge amount of activity on either side of that eating that uh, you just don't have to mess with. You know, you get up and uh, the, just the kind of general preparation of those things, even if you're making a protein shake, it, it breaks up your day, especially if you need long periods of time where you need to concentrate. And so it's hugely time uh, saving. And so actually in the book, I, the way the book is organized, it's across these six weeks in which you, you try these different procedures. And as things go on, um, in the sixth week, where I, uh, the sixth week, I, where people do up to a 72 hour fast, there are actually more chapters in that section. And I suggest more activities because the reality is you've got, got a heck of a lot more time on your hands. And I know when I first started doing this, it was treated as a kind of a crazy fringe thing. And I joke from the beginning until now the book comes out, it started out as a kind of fringe thing. It's become almost fashionable. So even people like the CEO of um, of Twitter, you know, or, uh, are now known to be uh, kind of avid fasters. And so it's funny how the public attitude of all this has changed really just over the last couple of years. It, it might be off topic, but you mentioned um, seeing instances of how religion interacts with science or how religion comes up in science. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask you about that because it seems like it's, I don't know, science tries to squelch any mention of religion and Anyone that does mention it seems to be uh, vilified and laughed at and all that. So do you find evidence that religion is still alive in science and how has it manifested over the past few years? Absolutely. I mean, there's this myth that religion and science are perpetually at odds, but I really think this is a myth that started, it started the 19th century. If you actually look at the founder, founders of modern science, in fact, the founders of almost all the sub-disciplines of modern science were actually very religious people. I mean, people like Isaac Newton, come on, the greatest scientist who ever lived, was also a devout believer in God. And right in the introduction to his Principia, he actually makes an argument from his, his science uh, to the existence of God. 
Um, and, and so I don't think, yeah, now, of course, there are certain manifestations of religion or certain manifestations of science that can be in conflict. But if science is just about the search for the truth about the natural world, as opposed to, say, being applied materialist philosophy, there's nothing about a search for the truth about the natural world that should be uh, in conflict with religion broadly construed. And I think as a Catholic that th these things are perfectly compatible as long as we define them accurately. Um, and I don't think there's really any reason to think otherwise. I mean, fasting is actually is a perfect example of this. I mean, something that for a long time was just a spiritual practice, it turns out can also have positive physiological effects that can be detected by science. Now, yeah, maybe science, the methods of natural science aren't adequate to detect exactly what's going on in the process of prayer, but the fact that we can discover that actually you're probably better off fasting, eating intermittently, that is, either than eat, eating constantly, you're much better off uh, uh, physically. That's a kind of a, an interesting confirmation, at least of a practice that has been a major part of every religion. And so I really think this idea that science and religion have to always be at war, I think it's honestly just the myth from 19th century materialism. And there's, there's no reason that we have to keep languishing under this idea in the 21st century. Yeah, it just seems like um, people have gone way out of their way to say that, uh, you know, religion has no place in science, it should be kept out, it shouldn't be mentioned or any of that stuff. And uh, I guess I find personally, the more I learn about science and biology and how complicated it is, the more it seems to point to uh, unbelievable complexity that just can't be random and uh, have come out of nowhere. So that's just, yeah. yeah my no, absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, there was this idea in the 19th century that everything had to be explained in terms of sort of blind and impersonal forces. But, you know, just commonsensically, if you look at what's going on inside cells or you look at organisms, these things just scream purpose and design. I think that's also true. Uh, in the human body. In fact, I have a chapter on the, the body's grand design. I think that we are, that we, our bodies are remarkably desi designed to be able to adapt to lots of different situations on the face of the earth. I mean, you've got people groups that do just fine eating uh, basically seal blubber and <laughs> seal meat year round, you know, which I would not prefer. And then you get other people that seem to do just fine people groups living primarily on essentially on sweet potatoes. And so I think that that's a kind of a remarkable thing. This, just this fact that we have this ability, right, to convert um, b both sugars, that is carbohydrates and fats into fuels, these two different substances that go through these two highly complex and coordinated pathways. And yet our body is able to use those for energy. All of these things just, they scream purpose and design to me. And I think it's only the kind of blinders of 19th century materialism that prevent us from seeing that. Well, very good. So where's the best place for people to get uh, the book? I bet it's, it's probably on Amazon. And <laughs> yes, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Absolutely. And in fact, it actually doesn't come out till January, but you, people can, um, yeah, they can pre-order order it. It's called Eat Fast Feast because the book isn't just about fasting. It's about uh, the fact that I think most of the time we're supposed to eat modestly and, you know, in a controlled way. Some of the time we're supposed to fast. And I think some, some of the time we're supposed to feast. Some of the time that is we're, we're supposed to celebrate. We're supposed to enjoy the abundance of creation and the many things we have. And I think that if we do that, if we live a life that's punctuated by these different ways of eating and behaving, I think we're going to live a much more fulfilled and much healthier life than if we do otherwise. What chapter is the feasting chapter? And that's probably the chapter everyone wants to get to, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. And <laughs> I, I leave the 
he's toward the end. And so I really don't want people to just go straight to the end though. You want to get, you get to the fast, the feast from the eating and the fasting. And honestly, I mean, what's funny is that, you know, for most of Western history, we have these feast days. I mean, every Sunday is supposed to be a feast day. Thanksgiving is a feast day. Christmas is a feast day. Um, But the truth of the matter is we sort of feast all the time. That is, we sort of overeat all the time. And then on those feast days, we just eat even more than we normally do. And I can tell you from fasting for you know a long period of time that if you really do fast in the lead up to, say, Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving, you will enjoy that feast a heck of a lot more than if you're already eating, eating your fill right up until then. So in many ways, fasting actually helps us to understand and enjoy feasts more than we would otherwise. Well, excellent. Last question before we go. What, what's the hardest thing to you about uh, fasting? What have you noticed? Huh. The, the hardest thing is probably, um, in some ways, kind of the social aspects of eating, because, you know, in, for most of Western history, or if you go to someplace like the island of Crete, where everyone still follows the Russian, or the rather the Greek Orthodox feasting or fasting schedule, everybody's doing it. So the kind of social aspects of our lives are oriented toward that. But when you're fasting just as an individual, and you're not plugged into a community that's also doing it, you can end up out of sync with people. So, you know, maybe a dinner party lands on a, a fasting day or something like that, or you've got a lunch, right? Now get lots of lunch meetings and that's one of your fasting days. And so really the adjustment to that. And so that's why I actually think ultimately it's beneficial if there are cultural and religious traditions in which you were sort of part of a, a there's a, a larger fasting schedule that's not just an individual thing. Without that, it ends up being, it requires it to be more of a personal discipline because your eating patterns may be out of sync with all the people that you live and work with. Yeah, and I guess it'd be hard to sit there if everyone's eating around you and you not eat, you know, not just because they, come on, eat something type thing, but just <laughs> literally just seeing the hard. meat. No, absolutely. You're seeing a meat and you're drinking green tea or something like that. Yeah, it, it, it is sort of a stress. I have, it is nice that I think this is becoming more popular. When I first started doing it, it was a bit eccentric, but more and more people are doing it, but we're certainly still not at the stage where say Western Europe was a few centuries ago in which just literally everyone was following a fasting schedule. That definitely makes it easier. Mm. Well, very good. Well, Jay, thanks for coming on. It's been a super interesting call. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Great to be with you. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.